Hello and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast about strange things that happen in history. My name is Barnaby King and I'm your host for this week and joining me as ever is my co-host Amelia Edwards. Hello. Hello. Hello, how are you doing? Hello, I am tired but that's no unusual thing. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I mean, when you're tired, you know, you want you want to relax, you want to you want to do something fun. Like maybe just sort of sit down and watch a film, you know? Sure. Yeah. And there's a particular film that has been making headlines recently. Is it Morbius? It is indeed the film <laughs> Morbius. We have been talking a lot about Morbius. <laughs> So for those who don't know, Morbius is a film, it's a Marvel film, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Starring Jared Leto and Matt Smith, of all people, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as like opposing vampires. Yes, but they gave themselves vampirism because they've got some rare blood disease or something. Yeah, yeah. Now... As far as I'm aware, because frankly, I have never had any intention of seeing Morbius in the cinema, but Mm. from what I understand, the film has been badly reviewed. It's been panned, I would say. Yeah, and people did not go to see it. No. (laughs) But because of people kind of trolling the studio on Twitter, constantly talking about it, it recently got a re-release. It did. Which... Also, no one went to see. But it means that Morbius has very much been in the headlines and trending on Twitter. And that got me thinking about vampires. Okay. So I thought that we would, you know, try and try and catch something off this trend of vampirism. <laughs> Are we going to just, like, be putting all the hashtags on Twitter Oh, today? yes, that be is going, my intention. Hashtag Morbius, hashtag Marvel movies, yep. hashtag vampires, yep, hashtag that- got the morbs. <laughs> Yes, that is entirely my intention. Cool, cool. But what I want to do with this episode is talk about vampires in a kind of general term. Because the thing is that vampire mythology is very old. And not just old, but exists across the world. Mm. I know you know something about vampires. You studied them in university a bit. Yeah, accidentally. Yeah. Well, I am going to talk this week about some of the different types of vampires that exist around the world. Okay. So we know of vampires coming mostly from Eastern Europe because of Dracula. Yeah. And the origins of the term vampire, and this is vampire, P-Y-R-E, vampire, come from... A couple of places. There's a mention in a poem by Lord Byron mm-hmm. called the Jiaour. <coughs> Sorry, the Jia, the Jiaour, <coughs> Jiaour. I think it's 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 How very. How's it spelled? It's G I A O U R. Oh God, I don't know. Yeah, I did look up a pronunciation, and I've written it as Jiaour. Okay, Jiaour, which is awful to say. Didn't Byron? stay with the person who wrote the first book called The Vampire. Yes, absolutely, which is the next person I was going to talk about, John William Polidori. Ah, Polidori. Good name. Yes, who in 1819 wrote the short story The Vampire. Mm -hmm. And this was... It's generally considered one of the first modern examples of fiction involving vampires, at least in the Western world. Yeah. Incidentally... Sometimes in some early editions of this, it was falsely attributed to Byron. Cool. Like early copies had the vampire by Lord Byron underneath. 
I imagine people did that on purpose so it would sell more. It's quite possible, but Byron was very quick to go, no, it was Polidori who wrote this. Mm. So <laughs> there Presumably are... because he was being a bit of a diva, being like, how dare you? Well, I think he liked it. I think he was, he was <laughs> kind of chummy with Polidori, and I think it was a sort of like, don't put my name on my friend's work. Okay, fair enough. I was maybe being mean to Byron because Possibly I so. don't like him. But anyway, Polidori's Lord Ruthven, the mm-hmm. titular vampire, is a manipulative sadist okay. who uses subtlety and guile to further his aims. He kind of seeks to just destroy those around him. Like, he manipulates people to become gambling addicts. Oh. Yeah. So, does he drink blood? He does, but that's kind of... He's kind of got two parts to him. Okay. He's got the part that, you know, needs to drink blood in order to sustain his immortality. Mm-hmm. And he's got this other part that's just, you know, sadistic and wants to just destroy people. That's really interesting. Yeah. He appears as a very wealthy and moral person that has all these secret things going on. I think it might be a comment on the nobility in some way. I, I would imagine so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he also, he despises beggars. Because the fact that he cannot ruin them any further bestows on them a certain purity. (laughs) Do you think Polidori was just really annoyed at someone who got him into a gambling debt? Quite possibly. This is starting to sound like a character out of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) We will talk about that book a lot on this podcast. Oh, yes. But as I said, despite seeming like a well-off and moral upstanding gentleman, his bloodthirsty behaviour soons become clear as he is seen to feast on a young woman. Ooh. In fact, on a couple of young women. It seemed to be his thing. I mean, romantic era vampires do like sucking ladies' blood. There is actually more than just the romantic era vampires. That's actually quite a common theme. But different sorts of women. We'll go into that a little bit later on. Okay. Neither Polidori nor Byron created the vampire whole cloth, though. Mm -hmm. The word itself and many of the characteristics seem to come from Slavic folklore, particularly with two creatures, uh, one known as the Upior, that is... In modern Polish, that's Upior, that's U-I-P-O-R. Okay. And also the Striga. Uh, the Striga is S-T-R-Z-Y-G-A. Of course it is. But also <laughs> I know of the Striga because of the Witcher. Yes, absolutely. And it, there's definitely a through line of that word being used for vampiric stuff, basically. Okay. But it also it comes in various different places. So I'm actually going to talk more about the Upyur. Okay. Because... The Striga is sometimes seen as a separate beast, um, with not always actually being vampiric. The Upyur is definitely vampiric. Okay. So, the methods of creating an Upyur, the characteristics and the defences against them differ wildly region to region. It's kind of a general term, rather than, you know, a specific sort of creature that you might find in the Monster Manual in D&D, for example. They could take the form of ghosts, or physical creatures, or sometimes they were spirits possessing corpses. Okay. And whether one might become an Upyur upon death depended on a number of different possibilities. Some of the folklore claimed that it was kind of predestined that an Upyur would be born with two souls, one human and one vampiric. Uh, The presence of this second soul would be seen by the person being a bit unusual. So candidates for being an Upyur were often left-handed, had red hair, Mm -hmm. or a unibrow, 
Or really? In, yeah. Okay. Or engaged in such behaviors as liking to go on walks at night. Okay. Or being from a different religion. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there's so much about vampire folklore that just seems to be like, we don't like people who are slightly different from okay. us. But also, I love they're of a different religion because, like, Poland, obviously it's kind of on the edge of things, but sometimes mm. Poland, I believe, interacted with, say, the Ottoman Empire. Oh, yeah. So imagine a whole a- empire of <laughs> vampires. Well, from what I could see, it's less that it was different religions and more that you were like, you were a different sect of Christianity. Oh, right. I see. It's goddamn Protestants. Yeah, pretty much that sort of thing. Protestant vampires. I mean, that makes sense with what we've talked about before with um, Elizabeth Bathory mm. and the idea that her bathing in virgin's blood was because catholicism was on its way back yeah and she was protestant i think and they wanted to make her seem evil that that would make sense yeah um thinking about the twin soul theory actually the uh the striga was generally depicted as having two souls and two hearts as well like a time lord vampire yeah basically love it uh this sort of idea of them having two souls or the up having two souls kind of died off after a while because of the introduction of baptism. Okay. Because the holy water touching the skin of the baby should destroy the evil spirits. Right, yes, because it's kind of an exorcism sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So, as a result, the folklore kind of needed to change. Yeah. And there became new ways to create an up-pure. And these include one of our old favourites, having an animal jump over your corpse. Lovely. Uh, if you were a suicide victim, mm-hmm. if you were a witch, yeah, and of course, if you have been killed by another upure. Okay. In some areas, uh, such as Silesia in Poland, it was believed that pregnant women who died giving birth might return as an upyor in order to care for the baby. Oh, that's really sad. I know. Why isn't there more vampire mythology about that, like, nowadays? Because that would be so heartbreaking and good. Yeah. So what they used to do was when a woman died in childbirth, she'd be buried near the edge of the cemetery by the wall, mm-hmm. basically so she'd be as far away as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, as I said, the Striga, they were they were quite similar to the Upyar, and the term was used somewhat interchangeably until about the 18th century. Okay. Um, after that point, the Striga kind of became more associated with witchcraft. <laughs> and was seen something more in that field okay. while the upure remains like vampiric yeah i mean that makes sense to me um so when i was doing my witchcraft module in the first year of university yeah which was not by the way me learning how to become a witch i was studying the history of witches that's what you would say i know um there was something i found in a book about russian witchcraft which was just amazing which is how witches would become werewolves okay which is you get a stump, you get a tree stump. Yeah. You uh, stick a knife in it. Yeah. And you somersault over it and you turn into a beast of your choosing. Oh. And then in order to turn back into a human, you have to do a somersault the other way. Right. Like as an animal. But if somebody takes the knife out, then you're stuck in an animal form forever. Yeah, well, makes sense. Yeah. And it's also, that is quite a feat, like doing a somersault over... Over a knife in a tree, yeah. yeah. Are you doing like a full front flip? I think so, yes. Um, Damn, which has got hops. It's got to, like, it only has to be a stump, so it could be quite low to the ground, uh, yeah, I fair. guess. And if it's a short, I mean, knife. still, you're but having to do a front cool. flip. Especially if we're imagining, like, old lady witches. Yeah. Although Russian witches tended to be more 
male dominated than mm. uh, Western witches. Except for Baba Yaga. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you might want to know how we can prevent someone from becoming an up your. Yeah, I don't want people chasing me down just because they've died in childbirth. Yeah, absolutely. So there are many different methods and frequently these include kind of putting something in the corpse's mouth before you bury it. Okay, well that's quite straightforward. Yeah, uh, these can include garlic, mm-hmm. chunks of iron, Ooh. or bricks. <laughs> <laughs> bricks that sounds disrespectful and it, like you're just smashing them in the face. Yeah, it really does. Uh, other methods include, rather than putting in the mouth, you could sprinkle poppy seeds in the coffin. Oh, I've heard that one. Yes. Uh, and this basically seems to be, sometimes like, Terry Pratchett does it as a sort of like, vampires are anal retentive and want to count all of them yeah this seems to be that basically the opio wants to clean up because you've messed up its house right so So it spends all its time trying to clean up these poppy seeds and doesn't leave the coffin before daybreak because if a uh up your is out of its coffin like doesn't return to it before daybreak it will turn into a load of black tar Ooh. yeah gross yeah uh strigas shared similar weaknesses but were also uh, said that they could be destroyed from the sound of church bells, mm-hmm. which would turn them into tar. Okay, well, that's useful because you're burying them in the graveyard. Absolutely. So that's I, th- good. I think this is a sort of like, hey, keep up that bell ringing tradition. Yeah. But you could also um, weaken one if you slapped it with your left hand. But we're not supposed to be left handed. That might turn <laughs> out, that might make us an upheal. <laughs> I know. You're trying to fend off a striga, you slap it, and it's like, oh, no. And then you're like, I've done it, but now I'm an up yours. (laughs) (laughs) You slap them and you're like, up yours. Hey, very good. Now, of course, this is already like lots of disparate things. Yeah. And we're going to hear more. Oh, my God. Different regions have different variations. There's a record in Krakow in 1847 that tells us that one could free an upyur soul by nailing the head of the upyur in the coffin. Mm-hmm. Then the writings of a teacher or professor should be placed under its tongue. Okay. Then, finally... A priest would decapitate the upyur, mm-hmm. and the head would be placed back in the coffin, but facing the other way. Right. 1847, did 1847. you say? 1847. That was after Oliver Twist was written. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, this says a record. So oh, sure. it might well be that this is talking about an incident that happened long beforehand. Yeah, okay. It, it, I don't know, though. It could be either way. It could be that this happened in 1847 or someone was recording something from an earlier text that we've lost. Yeah, okay. That's fair. Yeah. They could be brothers grimming it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in Slupia, a man who killed himself because of unrequited love was said to have become an upyor, but would flee at the crowing of a rooster at dawn. Ooh. Yeah. It doesn't seem to suggest that he would be destroyed by the daylight, but okay. he was really terrified of that rooster. So if you're a lady who had someone stalking you and turned them down, you just have to stay in your house and make sure you keep hold of chickens. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. In Warsaw, a body found by the roadside was believed to be an upyur, so it was buried and branches were placed over the grave. Come the next spring, those branches were then burned in order to purify the soul. Oh. Yeah. That's interesting. 
Now, in some versions, I will say the Striga, in particular, was not actually a harmful creature, but instead was kind of a, a sort of banshee. Okay. They would feast on animal blood, and they would let out a howl to herald someone's death, so they wouldn't actually drink the blood of humans. Okay. I mean, that might still be annoying if you were a farmer, though, I mean, in the yeah. sort of cattle mutilation style. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you've already said that the word striga is, like, that, that is kind of common. Do you know where it comes from? No. Well, to be fair, neither do we. But... <laughs> <laughs> then why bring us up? Well, because the Polish poet and essayist Adam Mikovich believed that the stories of the Upyor, and specifically the striga as well, came from a Greco-Roman story of the Strix. Okay. Which, plural, is strigus. Okay. And this was a bird-like creature that fed on the flesh and blood of humans. They were usually described as owl-like creatures, mm -hmm. but they would hang upside down like bats. Early stories uh, said that they would squirt their foul-smelling milk onto the lips of human infants. Ew. This was recorded as fact by a person by the name of Titinius who was a friend of Gaius Cassius Longinus. Oh, my God. Do you know who that is? I think so. He is the one you're thinking of. Go on, then. He was one of the conspirators in the assassination of Julius Caesar. Oh, shit, he's that Cassius. Yeah. Oh, my God. So while Gaius Cassius Longinus was, you know, plotting to get rid of Caesar, his friend was very worried about owls lactating onto infants. Why are you doing this to me? How have we got here from Poland? It literally took two sentences. I know. Well, this is the origin of the Strigus. And the, the Strix is kind of a vampiric creature. Um, Pliny the Elder basically said that that story was absolute nonsense. That Look, Pliny the, the Elder said that. Yeah. Then you know it really is nonsense. Yeah. He said that the Strigus did not squirt milk onto infants. He didn't dispute their existence. Okay, but they don't squirt milk on babies. Yeah. Despite that, it was a tradition for a while that uh, you would place garlic near sleeping infants because the smell would apparently distress the Strigas. That's awesome. Yeah. Also, oh my god. So wait, these owl bat things used to just turn up in in babies' bedrooms to squirt milk at them. Oh yeah. It wasn't just they happened to see a baby and were like, oh, I'm going to squirt my milk. No, no they sought they out sought babies out. to squirt milk on yeah. them. Yeah. That's so weird, man. Romans yeah. need to calm down. Well, they're not going to because Ovid actually made it one better. Where... How am I not surprised? <laughs> oh, that Ovid. Well, Ovid, uh, the playwright, that playwright poet, mm -hmm. <laughs> he um, had the Strigas. They would find sleeping infants and then disembowel them before feeding on their blood. You know what? I'm somehow more fine with that than I am with the milk <laughs> To thing. be fair, the lactation thing is pretty grim. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not that I'm fine with babies being disemboweled and eaten. Yeah. But it's something, it's somehow like less alarming. It, yeah. It, creepy. It, yeah, I get, I get what you mean. Yeah. It, it's kind of, it's, it's less perverted, I guess. Yeah, like, it, it feels like the lactation thing is like this weird kink they have. And it's yeah, like, oh, God. Why are they God, getting off on this? Like, what, weird owl bats. Why are these owl bats sex criminals? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, no, they were just killing and eating. Oh, okay, thank God. Okay, they're, oh, they're just ju monsters. They're just monsters and murderers. It's yeah, fine. That's okay. <laughs> now, you might think that this is one of the earliest sorts of vampire. 
But you would be wrong. Even earlier than the classical empires, stories go back as far as 3000 BC in Mesopotamia and Egypt. Oh my god. Which show creatures with vampiric qualities. In both ancient Babylon and ancient Egypt, there were stories of the rogue children of gods who stalked the land seeking blood. Wow. One such creature appears in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Well, it would have to, wouldn't it? Yeah. For us to know about it. Yeah. Unless it appeared on somebody's, like, complaint about not getting the right grade of copper or whatever. <laughs> Those are the two things I know about Babylon, and I'm hanging on to them. I mean, yeah, that's that's what you need to know. Fair. Uh, <laughs> Well, the Epic of Gilgamesh is like one of the oldest stories, like recorded mm. stories in human existence. And it's used in Star Trek. Yes, it is. Yeah. In one of my favorite episodes. Gilgamesh, a king. Gilgamesh, a king. At Uruk. He tormented his subjects. He made them angry. They cried out aloud. Send us a companion for our king. Spare us from his madness. But it, it tells the tale, essentially, of a mighty warrior, Gilgamesh, who just kind of kicks ass all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his friend dies. It's all very sad. <laughs> but the Epic of Gilgamesh mentions a creature by the name of Ki Sikil Lilla. Cool. And this later became Lilitu. And she is described as appearing as a woman with bird wings and bird talons instead of feet. Okay. In the story of Gilgamesh, she is defeated by him when she tries to seduce him. And then when he refuses, she sends monsters after him. Mm-hmm. And he handily defeats all the monsters because, you know, he's Gilgamesh. He's the greatest warrior ever. Yeah. And so she runs off. But despite this kind of being her only appearance in the story, uh, as a character, she would enter into folklore. She doesn't become Lilith, does she? Oh, just you wait. Oh my gosh. Uh, Later on, Lilithu would appear as a creature who would attempt to find young mothers to feed on their blood and either feed on the blood of their newborn infant Mm. or allow the infant to suckle from them. And this okay. was bad because the Lilithu didn't produce milk, but poison. <gasps> there does seem to be this whole thing then with early vampires that they are a bit obsessed with babies. Oh, yeah. And that is going to continue. Okay. <laughs> there is definitely this thing like later on, I feel like more modern vampire stuff. It's all like, oh, young virginal women. Mm-hmm. And then prior to the romantic period, it's like young mothers. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah, right? Lilithu would also sneak into rooms at night and harass young men mm-hmm. and either kill them or use them to father more monsters. Great. And thinking about that, we get to what you were just talking yeah. about. The fact that Lilithu later became Lilith, a powerful demon in Hebrew and later Christian mythology. Mm. Uh, She's only briefly mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, and she appears to be some kind of night demon, or possibly a species of demon, because depending on the translation, her name either appears as singular or plural. Okay. But it's one of these things that we're not quite sure, because ancient Hebrew be difficult. Okay. That makes makes a lot of sense as to why it's hard to translate the Bible. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. So she, or possibly they, get a much bigger role... In the Talmud, 
mm-hmm. which is the central text of rabbinic Judaism and some influence on Christianity as well. And this was happening around 4th or 5th century CE. Okay. In the Talmud, Lilith appears as the answer to a problem with the story of creation. Mm. Because in Genesis, it says both that man and woman were created together and that man was created first. Yes. So the Talmud has Lilith as Adam's first wife. But she was too willful because she wanted to be Adam's equal. Boo feminism, am I right? Absolutely. We definitely don't want the equal women. And she was also just too damn sexy to be a proper wife for Adam. (laughs) How dare she? Yeah. Although that seems quite mean to Eve. I mean, yeah, but this genuinely seems to be a thing. Some uh, modern scholars kind of see that Lilith is associated with sexuality without procreation, whereas oh, Eve right. is sexuality with procreation. Okay. So it, it's the difference between being a wanton hussy and being a mother. Right, okay. Yeah. Uh, so in this story, Lilith is cast out of Eden to become the mother of many demons and possibly a bride of Satan. Fun. By the Middle Ages, Lilith was kind of back to being a night demon as well as being Adam's first wife. Uh, she could apparently transform into animals and bewitch and seduce men. Although in some of these stories, she and her daughters wouldn't actually drain the blood of their victims, but just strangle them. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, she would also sneak into people's houses and do the same again. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know this because there we have evidence of amulets being sold that would protect people's houses against Lilith. Like specifically? Yes. That's hilarious. And these continued... They, these were in fashion for quite a while. In the 17th and 18th centuries, we have Kabbalah amulets inscribed against Lilith that reference her killing mothers and taking their newborns in order to drink their blood, suck their bones, and eat their flesh. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But Lilith is not the only vampire-like creature to appear in Judaism. Another creature, initially found in Babylonian mythology as well, is the Aluka which is a Hebrew word meaning horse leech. <laughs> okay. These, these creatures were living human beings that could change into wolves or else they could let their long hair down mm-hmm. and their long hair would allow them to fly through the air. That's awesome. Yeah. They needed to feed on human blood because if they didn't, they would basically starve and die. Okay. But this would be a problem because if an Aluka died, then it might become a more powerful demon. Mm. So, once the Aluka was dead, what you needed to do was get its corpse, Mm -hmm. open its mouth, Mm -hmm. and fill it with earth. Earth? Earth. Earth. And that would stop the Aluka becoming a more powerful demon. Okay. Now, some have argued, because again, as we say, this is ancient Hebrew and translations can be a bit dodgy, that it might well be that Aluka and Lilith are actually the same thing. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Like... There aren't really that many differences. You've got the same sort of the blood sucking and the Mm -hmm. being able to transform and flying and everything like that. So who knows? I just want an Aluka to be in a Studio Ghibli film. Yeah? I I feel like it would fit, weirdly. Like imagine his hair rising up at the back. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, that... Yeah, I, I thought for a moment you were thinking about them like being non-human or something oh no no i was thinking about them being i guess i just i just imagine this in like this beautiful stylistic way this creature that can turn into wolves and is forced to drink blood to survive and we kind of have a bit of a question about whether that's okay you know yeah 
So all the vampires we've talked about so far have kind of been human-like or human with like vague animal features or the mm-hmm. ability to turn into animals. But there are other places that have vampires that are wholly monstrous. Okay. Or, again, shape-changing, but different sorts. So we are going to go now to Africa. Okay. Because, of course, as I've said, vampire mythology is everywhere. Mm. And there's no reason that, you know, we should just stick to Europe and a little bit of Western Asia. (laughs) (laughs) Europe and the bits of other places that have affected Europe. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. But no, we're going to look at a few uh, creatures coming from Africa. Cool. Uh, One or possibly two, there are some ideas that these are actually two separate creatures, is known as the Asambosam. Okay. Or the Sassenbo Sam. <laughs> sure. Uh, this creature in the mythology of the Akan people of Ghana was said to dwell in forests and preyed on hunters. Okay. In some versions, the creatures resemble a cross between a human and a bat, but had iron teeth, Ooh. pink skin, and long red hair, as well as iron hooks instead of feet. Are we sure this isn't just some Vikings? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's red hair it's a redhead white person again. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, in in some versions they're a bit more like a flying fox. Okay. Um which is why there's a suggestion that they might be some separate creatures. Because you kind of got two forms. You've got the flying fox form and you've got the ogreish form. Ooh. And the ogreish form also has very long legs with feet that either point inwards or they've got two sets of feet on each leg. It's hard to tell. But what they would do is sit in the branches of tall trees and then hunters would come by and not see the legs dangling there in amongst all the the undergrowth. And as soon as they got near, the legs would snatch them up and they'd be pulled up in the tree to be devoured and have their blood drunk. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty grim. Yeah. But kind of cool at the same time. A very different form, which uh, does come from Ghana as well as Togo, is the ads. Okay. And this is not the ads like the tool. That was what I was imagining. It is is spelled the same way, A-D-Z-E. Okay. But in the wild, the ads takes the form of a firefly. Okay, I'm already scared. Yeah. I don't know why that's scary, (laughs) but maybe because it's cute? I don't know. In its firefly form, it was able to pass through doors and walls uh, and at night would suck the blood of people when they slept. The victim would then fall sick and die. Right. It's some suggestion that this is an early explanation of malaria. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the difference with an ads is that when you capture it, it transforms into a human. Okay. But when it is in its human form, it gains a new power. The power to possess other humans. Oh my god. This isn't even my final form. Exactly. <laughs> Except it's a firefly, so it's like, this isn't even my final form. <laughs> <laughs> so what the ads would do in its human form is possess someone, and then it would kind of take the role of a witch in in the sort of witch trials that you studied. Okay. They would generally, people would be accused of harbouring an ads because they're like, someone's mis- someone has like suffered some misfortune and yeah. they're like, this isn't my fault or this is the fault of that family. Yeah. They're possessed by an ads. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Okay. 
I like how so far it seems like vampires really just reflect whatever the particular society is worried about. Yeah, pretty much. Like I- with pre-industrial Western society, it makes sense that people are very worried about young mothers dying mm. because that would explain, say, why women were dying after giving birth. Yeah. Which presumably they did a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, this list is obviously by no means an exhaustive list of all the different vampire types because, frankly, there are so many, I'm tempted to do more episodes on Fair this. Fair enough. <laughs> um, we're going to go to our last vampire of today. Oh. And this one is a bit of a mystery. Okay. I'm not even sure it's a vampire, but I wanted to talk about it regardless. <laughs> okay. And this is the Romanga, and it comes from Madagascar. Okay. It's said, possibly, to be a living vampire human who would appear at certain ritual times to drink the blood and eat the toenail clippings from important people. <sighs> I okay. What is it with weird creatures eating toenail clippings? I don't I know. I swear this is a thing in mythology, and I, it's always creepy. I mean, there is in Viking mythology. There is the ship Nagelfar made out of the toenails of dead men. Yes, which is why there was a tradition of cutting the toenails when someone died before they were buried. Yeah, but the thing is, so there is this version of it where it's a monster that you know feeds on blood and apparently toenails. Cool. But there is also some debate as to this might have actually just been referencing a kind of religious role in the ritual. Okay. Like a person played the role of the Ramanga and their job was to taste the blood and eat the toenail clippings as these important people. Right. We don't know and it looks like we probably never will know because it seems that those original folkloric customs were kind of suppressed by, you know... Colonialists? Yeah. Probably the British? Uh, Almost definitely. Unless it's maybe the French? I think they speak French in Madagascar. I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure, but white people regardless. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're vampires. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Because we're pink and we've got red hair. Yeah, and we snatch people from out of trees with our very long legs. I mean, maybe. I mean, I know I do. (laughs) (laughs) So that's all the vampires I'm going to talk about for this week. So thank you for listening to That Time When... Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at that time when for and suggest episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. Thank you as ever to Kevin McLeod for our theme song Anachronist, as well as any other music that Barnaby's used in the podcast. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and keep handy your wooden stakes, nails, matches, garlic, amulets, chunks of iron, roosters, poppy seeds, and handfuls of earth. Bye!